0: Well, good morning. If we haven't met, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors here, along with uh, Pastor Sam, who you met earlier. And Pastor Brian, who's somewhere here today before heading off on vacation for a bit. Oh, I was going to put this down here. Sorry, let me do that quick. <clears throat> well, hey, I'm excited. We're, uh, New Year, kicking off a new uh, sermon series in the letter of 1 John. And it's a, it's a series titled, Full Assurance. And uh, if, if you're less familiar with the Bible, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, also wrote three letters in fancy Bible talk. They're called epistles, right? And uh, he wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John um, to address kind of specific situations. So we're diving into, into 1 John. Um, in, in his Gospel, John wrote to people who weren't yet followers of Jesus, for a very specific purpose that he wrote in the Gospel of John. He said this is why he wrote, so that uh, they might, quote, believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. So that's why John wrote the Gospel. In, in uh, the epistle of 1 John, he wrote to Christians, so people who were already followers of Jesus, who were in need of encouragement and reassurance, Here's what he said. He wrote, quote, so that you may know that you have eternal life, so that you may know. Now, the book of Hebrews speaks of the full assurance that faith brings. So you see the series title, right, Full Assurance. Um, I'm excited to dive into this because I think it hits us where we live you know, in our 21st century Western secular culture, it can feel like everything is up for grabs, right? It can, it can feel like nothing is certain because everything is evolving and nobody really knows for sure, right? And that whole vibe can kind of creep into our spiritual beliefs as well. Our, our secular culture says spiritual beliefs are purely a matter of personal preference and that the only test they need to pass is whether they are true for you. And if they're true for you, that doesn't mean that they're true for others also. So keep it to yourself. Be tolerant. Don't try to talk to other people about what what truth is. And as followers of Jesus, living in this cultural stew, sometimes even our own faith can begin to feel kind of uncertain or a little bit shaky or we start to wonder, like, how, how do we know? How do we know that this is the truth, not just A truth. It's true for me. It's true for everybody else, too. Like, how how do I know? One commentator summarizing the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, wrote this. To read the epistles of John is to enter another world altogether whose marks are assurance, knowledge, confidence, and boldness. The predominant theme of the epistles is Christian certainty. I love that. Do you feel a need for that? Christian certainty. John wrote so that followers of Jesus might have the full assurance that faith in Jesus brings. I was was reminded of this. Obviously, when you prep for a series like this, you've been doing the reading and do the, you know, lay out the series and all that. So I've been kind of living in this whole thing, and that verse from Hebrews, the full assurance that faith brings has been camped out in my heart for a bit. And it was just Friday afternoon uh, at the funeral for David Klaus when Greg Klaus, one of the Klaus's children, stood right here and in eulogizing his dad said, quote, we have full assurance. And it just, it just, tripped my trigger because I've been living in this world, right? Having full assurance through faith in Jesus is a big, huge deal. It meets us where we live right now. Today, tomorrow, the next day, the day when we're on our deathbeds, it matters big time. So in that sense, even though we're twenties. 20 centuries past the writing of the letter of 1 John, its content is amazingly relevant to what we experience today. And we're going to unpack that over the next six weeks, and I'm excited about that. Now, normally, we start with the scripture and unpack what the scripture says. We're going to do that, but I want to take a little time this morning to give you some context for the letter a little bit more with the hopes that you'll listen to the scripture differently when it's read. So let me just set the stage for this so that we're all kind of thinking well, about what was going on. Again, the Apostle John wrote it. Um, we have to ask what was going on when he wrote the letter? What was the context into which he wrote it? Why did he write? What did he hope to accomplish? He wrote primarily to encourage followers of Jesus who were facing a confusing situation. Again, relevant? I mean, how many confusing situations do we face? How many, how many uh, numerous counter spiritual claims to what we believe about Jesus? We face these all the time. An older commentary called this letter, quote, a masterpiece in the art of edification. It's very clear that John was functioning as a pastor. He was writing to encourage, to help, to build up this church that was facing a confusing situation. And he sought to encourage them by countering the false teaching they were being presented. Evidently, here's the situation. Some members of the church had adopted um, the philosophy of Gnosticism, And you can do a deep dive on this and what the exact problem was in the church. But in general, this was the kind of broad philosophy that was the false teaching being encountered by this church. Gnosticism taught two primary things. One, physical matter is impure, including me and my body and the book in front of you and the pew and the pew upon which you're sitting. Physical matter was impure. And two, knowledge is supreme. Because they believed physical matter was impure, they struggled with the claims of Christmas. Namely, that God became a physical human being. That was beyond their, that would be anathema. No way would the God of the universe take on physical matter because this stuff's impure. The whole goal is to ditch this thing at the end of life and our soul will be freed from it. So that, that's where they're living, right? And because of that, they denied that, quote, Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. John names the problem a little later in the, in the letter. They didn't, now, they didn't deny that Jesus had come in the flesh. They weren't in this camp of which, amazingly, there are modern examples of people who deny that Jesus was a historical figure, an actual human being who lived. They, they didn't deny that. What they denied not that, was not that Jesus came in the flesh, but that the Christ came in the flesh, that the second person of the Trinity, that God took on human form. That's what they denied. So very interestingly, what we end up with in this little letter of 1 John is not a restatement of the details of Christmas, like the birth of Christ and how it all went down and, and the angels and all that. What we have here is an unpacking of the meaning of Christmas. What does it mean that Christmas actually happened? And it's perfect on Epiphany Sunday, right? Because epiphany, the word, means appearance or manifestation, and the whole point John is making in this whole letter is, is, hey, look, it really happened. God became a human being. And that matters to what we, what we believe. <clears throat> now, those false teachers had been members of the church, but as they began to adopt those kind of Gnostic views, they left the church and started their own thing. Sound familiar? Human division. I don't like this. I'm going to go start my own thing. Um, John states this specifically in chapter two. He talks about a group going out from us to start a new thing. They left evidently because they couldn't persuade everybody in the church to adopt the views that they thought were preferable. So the original church was left kind of rattled and wavering and wondering. A big chunk of them had left. And they're like, whoa, is that right? Like, what, what, should, we, what, should, what should we really believe? So John wrote to them to help them discern between genuine Christian faith and the false ideas that were being presented to them. Again, relevant? How to discern between genuine Christian faith and all of the things that are not only directly contrary to it, but just a little bit off, that way or that way. Almost true, but not quite. So John wrote to them to help them. Now, two more quick things, and then we'll actually read the text uh, about the Gnostics. Because they believed uh, physical things were impure and knowledge was supreme, what really mattered to them was what you knew, not how you behaved. The knowledge thing separated people into two camps. The, um, you know, those who got it, those who didn't, the enlightened and the unenlightened, the initiated and the uninitiate. And in this way, Gnosticism was very unloving because it divided people. It didn't seek to invite people in, sought to draw these boundaries to discern who was out. The complete opposite of the gospel, right? And taken to an extreme, Gnosticism, because physical matter uh, was impure, Gnosticism taught that what you did in your body didn't matter. Because, you know, you're ditching this thing at the end of life anyway, then your soul will be free. But for now, in this life, when you're stuck with this impure thing that you're living in, whatever you did was good. Because it's all going to burn in the end, so, you know, go nuts. So in that sense, it got ugly <clears throat> in the extreme versions. People started doing whatever they wanted, and it was crazy. So Gnosticism was unbelieving in a sense that it denied Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. It was unloving because it kind of divided people and initiated uninitiated thing, And it was unethical because it said, hey, whatever you do in the body, no big. There, there's no connection between what you believe spiritually and how you behave. So in, in the letter of 1 John, what John does is he 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 reminds people of the original gospel. That, by the way, is the OG in my crazy sermon title, if you noticed that. Come on, you got to give me some props for that. The OG and the haters. You've never heard of a sermon title like that, right? The OG is not the original gangsta, but the original gospel. And of course, in my little thing, the haters are the Gnostics, right? Uh, So what Paul does is he reminds everybody of the original gospel. And we'll get back to that. There's a big assumption here that there is an original gospel. And then he talks about three ways the Gnostics denied that or three specific false claims. As we read the text, you'll catch the reminder at the beginning and then you'll hear John repeat three times. If we claim that, if we claim that, if we claim, those are the three denials that the Gnostics are, uh, are claiming. So with all of that, let's now listen to the scripture.
1: That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Thanks, Jennifer. If, um, excuse me, you get nasally John today if you didn't notice, sorry. Um, If you're more familiar with the Bible, you know that most of the letters start with a greeting. You might've noticed there's no greeting in this one. He dives right in. John is so passionate to address the issue that is before him. He jumps right to the core issue. Was Jesus the Christ? Because, what we believe about Jesus is everything. In Fancy Talk, the church back then was facing a Christological crisis. What they believed about Jesus was being attacked. And people were feeling kind of shaken. Like, what, what do we do about this? And, and what should we really believe? So John launches straight into it. That which was from the beginning... Now remember, this is the Apostle John. He wrote the Gospel of John also. So when the Apostle writes that which was from the beginning, we have to think of what he said in his Gospel also. Look at this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So that which was from the beginning clearly refers to Jesus, the Word of God, who was with God and was God. It's the original gospel, right? God came to earth in the person of Jesus. That's the entire point. We live in a world where an incarnation has happened. God really did this. This isn't about human beings working their way to God through religious activity. This is not one of many options on the buffet of human religion from which a person can pick to build their own belief system. The claim is utterly and indisputably unique. Something happened in history that proves definitely that God loves people and wants everybody everywhere to come home to him. That's the original gospel. It's about God coming to us in person, entering into our world of brokenness and pain for the purpose of helping us, redeeming us, to pay a debt he didn't owe for us, a people who owed a debt we could never pay. What we believe about Jesus is everything. John goes on and turns up the volume very quickly. His point is to show that the original gospel hinges on the reality that God came in the flesh. This wasn't just a spiritual idea. This this isn't a secondary point. Look what he said. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. Notice the progression of testimony from hearing to seeing to touching. One commentator notes that it moves from the most abstract hearing to the most material, touching. You can feel the force of the confrontation, right? When you have the Gnostics saying, there's no way God came in the flesh. Physical matters impure, no way this was happening. And John is saying, look, I know what they're saying and they're dead wrong. I heard him. I saw him. I've touched him, touched him now in his flesh. I spent countless hours with him. I ate with him. I prayed with him. I've embraced him. I've cried with him. Truly, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is the original gospel. Right in Jesus, God came to us in the flesh for the purpose of helping us, redeeming us, saving us. That God really did this. What we believe about Jesus is Everything. <clears throat> back, <clears throat> back during the Colossians series, in the fall, I picked up a, a new little commentary by a guy named R.C. Lucas, a British theologian. And in, uh, in, in chatting with a friend, he recollected a time when he heard uh, Lucas preach. And in that sermon, he kind of unpacked an interaction with a theologian. He was a British guy. He unpacked this interaction he had with a, a, a theologian in the UK, I believe. And he was kind of, the guy was kind of slippery. Like he wouldn't really say what he believed. And so Lucas was kind of asking questions and, and he couldn't really pin the guy down. So he finally came straight down to it and he was like, look, do you worship Jesus? And the guy went, no, 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 no. We would never worship Jesus. Well, there it is. What we believe about Jesus is everything, because the claim is that He was God, and we worship God. We worship Jesus. The result of the proclamation says John of this of this original gospel is that it creates fellowship and joy. You need to look at those in verses three and four. This message brings people together from every kind of different background, because when internalized and fully embraced the original gospel helps us see that every human being everywhere is in the same boat, right? We're all broken and in need of God's help. And with regard to that universal need, your ethnicity does not matter. The color of your skin does not matter. Your economic status does not matter. What you do for a living does not matter. The way you experience sexual attraction does not matter. The only thing that matters is that you, like every other human being, need God's help. And God came to earth in the person of Jesus to offer that help because he loves you. You. Not just everybody else, but you. He wants you. Fully. All of you. He wants you to lay it all down. Come home to him. You know, and as we as we receive God's grace, we're drawn together into this, you know, proverbial hospital for sinners that is the church. And we see that we are simply a community of the broken who have received God's grace in Jesus. It's only in its worst kind of warped forms that the church claims to be something special, right? To to be above or better than or whatever. That's all. That's not gospel stuff. The gospel is that we all need God's help and that as we receive God's grace, we're drawn into a, a kind of human community that defies worldly logic, right? Just because it brings people together. So this is the reminder of the OG and then John turns and talks about three ways the Gnostics were denying the original gospel, those if we claim that statements, right? And and now would be a good time for me to kind of give thanks to John Stott for his little commentary on 1 John. The framework for this series is largely based on the framework that he brought in his commentary to, to looking at this letter. He outlines three ways the false teachers denied the truth of the original gospel. The denial that sin breaks our fellowship with God, the denial that sin exists in our nature, and the denial that sin shows itself in our conduct. So let's, let's look at those in order. Right, here's the first. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. So the false claim, the denial, is that we can have unbroken fellowship with God while walking in darkness. I take that to mean habitually behaving in ways that are sinful. Um, walking in a way that's not cooperating with God and what God is doing in our lives. As is the pattern, John names the false claim and then unveils it for what it is, an untruth, a lie. And in each of these cases, he turns then and makes a positive statement about what it is that we actually believe as followers of Jesus, what the original gospel says. Here are his words in this case. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. But if we walk in the light, what what does that mean? Really? Because clearly it's more than just knowing stuff about Jesus, otherwise we'd be in the Gnostic camp, right? Stott put it this way, we must walk in the light of his holy self-revelation and in his presence, and this phrase is worth the price of admission. Without deceit or dishonesty in our mind or consciously tolerated sin in our conduct. That's walking in the light. Right, another commentator put it this way. Walking in the light describes absolute certainty to be, so to speak, all of a piece, to have nothing to conceal and to make no attempt to conceal anything. And willful sin breaks our fellowship with God so we strive to follow Jesus through obedience to God it's the first denial then the truth right here's the second denial if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us the second false claim was more insidious than the first it it claims that we're that we're without sin this is a denial of the sinful nature within every human being In, in their thinking because there was no sin there was no real problem Therefore, no salvation was necessary, nor was a savior needed to provide help from beyond ourselves because all we needed to do was know the right stuff. And that's what they were claiming, the false teachers. All we need is enlightenment, more and better knowledge. I just, just throughout this, I invite you to think of the parallels in our day. Where in our culture, in the, in the larger conversation today, do you see this idea popping up? that all we need is more and better knowledge, that that will be the path to salvation, to a better world. You know, it's everywhere, right? John calls this self-deception. If we believe this, he says, we deceive ourselves. I, I take that to mean like, if you're really in that place where you think, eh, there's really nothing wrong with me. Th- that self-deception, says John, I think... Uh, in reference to the massive internal self-justification required to claim that we really aren't broken. Right, you know you, I know me. What would you have to do to convince yourself that you're really not that bad? What? Because we really are. The truth of it, right, there's, there's something fundamentally broken in us that I certainly know I can't fix. I hope you're at that place too where you realize there's something broken in me that's way beyond my ability to fix it, way above my pay grade. But says John, the positive truth of the original gospel is this. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, meaning acknowledge our need and ask for help, right? If we do that, God will forgive and purify Writes one commentator on the forgive and purify part. Sin is a debt which God remits and a stain which he removes. Hallelujah. Sin is a debt that God pays for us and a stain that he removes from us. Forgiveness and purification. Again, what we believe about Jesus is everything. Here's the third denial. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. The third false claim is that if a person has superior enlightenment, they are incapable of sinning, of doing wrong things, of behaving in ways that are contrary to God's desires. And again, John is very clear. To claim this is not only to tell a lie or to deceive ourselves, but to make God out to be a liar. In addition, if we claim we haven't sinned, it becomes clear that God's word is not in us, because the word of God, meaning scripture now, declares clearly and often that sin is universal, that our sinful nature and the sin that results from it is our shared human dilemma, the big problem. The positive truth of the original gospel is this, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So it's been kind of a long sermon, so just wake up. (laughs) Focus on this one. Do not miss the gift of that verse. Here's how my simple brain summarized it. I write this so you won't sin, but if, when you do, Jesus has you covered. You feel the tension to that, right? Yeah, we shouldn't do stuff we know is wrong. And yet, if, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've been trying to follow Jesus, you know that you fail and you do stuff that's wrong in this process of becoming more like Jesus in this world. The scripture holds these things in tension. We like to have the teeter-totter go this way or that way. Again, here's how John Stott put it. It's important to hold these two statements in balance. It's possible to be both too lenient and too severe towards sin. You know, too lenient, and you run the risk of excusing behavior that is clearly wrong in God's eyes. Wrong behavior is wrong. We ought not do it. Period. Too severe... <clears throat> and you deny the possibility that a follower of Jesus will still experience sinful failures in the ongoing process of sanctification, which is a reality. We do. We will. For our whole lives, we'll struggle with this. That doesn't excuse the behavior. The behavior's still wrong. It's emerging from our nature that is being remade in the image of God. Jesus has us covered when we do wrong. That doesn't mean we should do wrong knowing that Jesus has us covered. I write this so you won't sin, but if, when you do, Jesus has you covered. What we believe about Jesus is everything. And back to this assumption, to wrap this up, you know, the OG and the haters, John's entire assumption in writing this letter is that there is a gospel. There was an original understanding of what Jesus came to do for us. And the, the, the church over the centuries has referred to that as the apostolic tradition. That, that which those who, who walked with Jesus, who knew him, who, like you can reach out and touch the person next to you, they could do that with him. They spent their lives with him. They, they watched him. They learned from him. They watched him die on the cross, some of them. And then they were filled with the spirit and by the guidance of God's spirit set the world on fire. To the point where now more people in the world spiritually consider them followers of Je- themselves followers of Jesus than any other spiritual belief in the world. This isn't just a religion from which human beings choose. There is an original gospel. It will be challenged. It has been challenged in every day, in every season of the church from the very beginning. There will be, there will be just things that go perpendicular to it and are like, whoa, this is completely wrong. But more often than not, they'll be just subtle diversions. And Martin Luther said, if we do not defend the gospel where it's being attacked, we do not defend it at all. So where is it being subtly attacked? You go like this or you go like that, right? How do you discern? How do you nuance the genuine thing from the million other things that try to creep in? This is what John is writing to us about. And he gives us three tests Pure gift to the church. We're going to unpack these over the next few weeks. He gives us three tests for discerning the real thing from the fakes. See, what we believe about Jesus is everything. The original gospel to which the apostles bear witness is this God came to us in person in Jesus, Jesus became the atoning sacrifice for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. This grace, as we receive it, we We have to acknowledge our need and ask for help. And as we do that, we're drawn into a new community. This grace of God creates a new community, the, the church, where we love one another, try to at least, as Jesus loved us. And together we affirm that obedience to God matters as we welcome God's sanctifying work in us in this journey of life. There is an original gospel and discerning what that is is incredibly important because what we believe about Jesus is everything. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Pray with me, would you? God, thank you for your word. <clears throat> would you please reveal to us how you're getting our attention, what you're saying, and how you'd like us to respond, even as we come to your table and celebrate with The tangible elements, the great truth that you have been made manifest among us, that you became tangible to us in our world in the person of Jesus. So pour out your spirit on us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.